0: Good evening listeners, it's September 17th and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7pm and on a Sunday that can mean only one thing, it's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Cobb, And I'm Kristen
1: Finch. At Oregon State we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU, and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just wanna find out more about our up and coming guests and the awesome things going on at Oregon State University, you can check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. You can find out about our guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages.
0: Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live and should they occur any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight we are joined by Ben Lewis who is a second year master's student in the College of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences in the lab of Jennifer Hutchings. Hey Ben, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about what you study?
2: Um, I study atmosphere-sea ice interactions. I look at how sea ice will fracture when under certain atmospheric conditions and what the impacts of those are, particularly on the motion of the sea ice and how those fractures influence that.
0: So do you study a specific area, um, specific region of ice?
2: Oh, uh, Yes. I study the Beaufort Sea, which, you know, for those not, you know, very familiar with the Arctic, that's the part of the Arctic Ocean that's just north of Alaska and you know, just a little bit to the west of Canada.
1: And so is sea ice always present in this area of the world?
2: Uh, to a certain degree for now. <laughs> um, uh, in the wintertime it you know, always freezes up you know, to the coastlines in the Arctic region. Um, in the summertime, it's you know, varies from year to year, how much it retreats. There's normally a little bit of sea ice in the you know, Beaufort. You know, and if it lasts for more than one summer, it becomes multi-year sea ice.:
1: And so how do you uh, study these fractures in sea ice?
2: Well, you look at av- our satellite imagery with, in the uh, thermal band, so I can see it in the wintertime when there's no light. And I use these satellite images to see when these fractures are appearing. And from that, I then look at the um, atmospheric data from reanalysis models to try and see what the atmosphere is doing approximately when that fracture formed.
0: So when you're looking at these images, is it readily apparent? What sort of what you're looking for, What are there certain characteristics that fractures possess that are uh, apparent in these images?
2: Uh, yes. In the thermal imagery, it's essentially measuring heat. You know, ice is very cold. Um, ocean is you know, much warmer. And so when these fractures appear, you, you'll see this large, bright line You appear in the ocean, and you, these fractures that the satellite images are picking up you know, I'm not seeing you. Know, small, small little cracks in the ice. These are hundreds of meters across, hundreds of kilometers long. So they're they're pretty visible.
1: And so then you're trying to correlate that image or the appearance of that image in uh, in time to what was going on in the atmosphere also at that time.
2: Yes, um, it's a very observational study, although. You observing what's happened in the past, hard to do. Uh, you know, The real time doesn't uh, you know it takes too long to process.
1: So it's but, not like a perfect, uh, not a perfect correlation, but you're still trying to predict when these things are going to happen.
2: Right. You the um, you these leads can you appear at any time of the day. I just get a satellite image. You whenever the satellite happens to be passing over. So I won't necessarily be able to see it appeared at 5:32. I'll be like, well, it wasn't there yesterday, and it's here today. So, <laughs> so it happened sometime <laughs> in the last. Yeah.
0: So I think that's an interesting component of this, in that there is a temporal aspect of it, where these are actually propagating very rapidly. Actually, it's not over months or years. It can happen on a time scale of hours. Actually.
2: Ah, uh, that's correct. Um. You know, a particular case study, I you downloaded as much satellite data as I possibly could within, you know, the week that these fractures were forming. And, you know, um it's approximately, like, 500 kilometers that this fra- you know, these fractures opened over a period of about six hours. So, like, it's pretty rapid.
1: Wow. So, so they can just crack and appear in the sea ice. And then, so what would happen if you're out maybe you're a hunter on the sea ice and or you're uh an animal on the sea ice what happens like when a fracture like this happen or occurs
2: um you would not want to be on the ice pack <laughs> when <laughs> when one of these fractures occurs you it's going to be very violent you depending on the type of fracture you could have a lot of sea ice breakout which you normally the sea ice is kind of you, know, this kind of concrete, all all these little ice flows are all you know, sealed to get frozen together. But then, when you have one of these breakout events, they all shatter into a bunch of individual small flows that you. Know, some will go underneath others. Some will crumple up against another, like you know, mountain ranges forming, and you. Know, it can be a very dangerous time, particularly you know, for people out on the sea ice.
1: So, is that one of the applications of your work?
2: Um. Ideally, you know, if you know, better better predicting of when these sea ice leads can occur, you would allow for safer hunting conditions.
1: Right. So if if you find some kind of correlation uh, when the when the atmosphere is like this, or this is the atmospheric pressure reading, there's a higher, I guess, danger or risk of these
0: fractures.
2: Right.
1: Okay.
0: So <clears throat> the data set that you're using, this was compiled by the Geographical Information Network of Alaska. And what was interesting is it was over, this data set was over a long time period, right? It was
2: like 20 years? Right. Um, yeah, so these satellite images you know, can take some time processing. So I'm using a 20-year data set You from GINA, the Geographical Information Network of Alaska, and yeah like so 20 years as we've seen in the arctic there's been a lot of climate change a lot has happened and so the, it's nice to have this long time scaled long time series especially when some of these patterns you mainly see like you once every few years it allows you to get at least a handful of samples to you know, build something off of and so the
0: it seems like from what I've heard, that ap- the weather in the Arctic is more susceptible to the effects of climate change, and so do you account for that in your analysis? Or
2: um, you, know, since it's observational, I'm just looking and seeing at what seeing what's happening. However, you know, you see a lot, or in the literature and other studies, you know, it's been widely shown that the ice is moving faster it's able to deform you to at greater rates than it was in the past. However, with these fractures, I at least observationally, I've seen you know, the same you know, statistically, there's not I'm not seeing any more more or less fractures. However, it's possible you know, the melt season has been increasing over time. So it's possible that the time period where the sea ice is You've frozen all the way to the coast has decreased in the number of days, and thus, if I'm seeing the same number of fractures in a given season, and this season's getting smaller, you there could be more season more fractures per day, so to speak.
0: So basically, the idea being there that your freeze season begins later and ends earlier.
2: Correct. Like the other day, I was trying to um. I was trying to see if there was any data on when the sea ice was frozen up along the coast. And so far people pretty much focus on when freezing starts to happen and when melting starts to happen. So I can't say for sure if the the time period when it's been compact against the coast has changed, but there's a decent probability it has.
1: And so in this uh, shortening of ice season what could that mean for hunters or for uh, marine mammals
2: um less time <clears throat> less time where there's sea ice particularly along the coast you the classic example there is polar bears which you, you they need they need land they need sea ice and so when the sea ice melts away they essentially stay on land during the summer months until it comes back just you know, most of the time, starving, just or at least for the males. Um, for other animals, um, like there's there's a whole wide variety of factors going in. The sea ice, sea ice melt normally leads to an algae bloom, because now there's finally sunlight hitting the ocean. But if that happens too early in the spring, the winds are still you know, kicking up. And like mixing to a very deep layer, and you don't have a very good algal bloom, which then the small fish don't get to you get as fat. You know that that hurts cod harvests. Um, There's been correlation with decreased fish harvests, you in the years after early sea ice melt.
1: Okay so the implications could be pretty yeah. dramatic in the shortening of ice ice formation season but it sounds like a very interesting uh landscape well maybe not a landscape because it's ice <laughs> but kind of a dynamic landscape where these fresh these fractures form they open up and then do they stay is that like is a fracture permanent for the rest of the season or could they also close up thereafter
2: um no these are very um, very dynamic features of you'll see them open up in the satellite imagery, one day, and you know, depending on how big the fracture was, you won't even be able to see it four or five days later. Other times you can see, you can see like the scars of the fracture, but the ocean's been exposed to the air, and so it's frozen, you know, not quite as thick as the surrounding ice, and so you can still you see it in the imagery but you know, within hours to days these fractures will freeze you know, freeze over again
0: so one thing i'm curious about is this idea of fractures formed under high versus low pressure is that something that you're specifically looking at
2: um yes most of you know, a lot of other studies have seen you know, fractures forming under high-pressure conditions, and in the Beaufort Sea region, high-pressure is the the dominating um, atmospheric condition, like the prevailing atmospheric condition in the region.
0: Is is, is there Uh, a specific sort of um, atmospheric characteristic that is personified by high-pressure? How would we recognize that?
2: Yeah, so um, in this area, it's called the Beaufort High, it's, you know, you won't necessarily see it on any single day. However, when you average the sea level pressure over months, you always see this high pressure in the region. And it's, you know, made up of, you know, about once a week or so, high pressure system moves across the region. But, you know, every now and then a low pressure will also move across.
0: And so low pressure means more rain? Low Is pressure yeah
2: um sorry uh yes, low pressure low pressure brings rain um, also you know rain means there's clouds, and when there's clouds, the satellite you satellites only pick up the clouds and so my research is you know, luckily, there is mostly high pressure, so I get to see you have clear skies to see the ice pack most of the time, but anytime there's clouds or fog. I'm I'm blind, basically.
0: So the clouds represent an actual real practical challenge in being able to analyze your data. Right. It's interesting. Um, So thinking about actually the ice itself, um, you mentioned that what you're looking at specifically, the width on average is around 250 meters wide. Is that the smallest that you can observe?
2: Yes, that's... You know, that wouldn't necessarily be the average, but you know two hundred and fifty meters wide is the smallest fracture width that i can you know, that I can see within the imagery and several of them are you know, could be up to like a kilometer kilometer and a half thick or wide
1: okay fractures. so so these are like pretty big features and noticeable yeah. or uh, you can only notice them if you if you uh if you can see them, because they're <laughs> big enough for the satellite to pick up. Right.
2: right. <laughs> there, there's plenty of smaller fractures that happen within the ice pack, and newer satellites are able to pick those up You know, with um, you know, resolution going down to tens of meters. However, those are newer satellites, and you don't have as long of a time series to, to look at that.
0: Right. So for yours, you're looking back, when the data set was, uh, the data was initially collected was in 1993. Right. So, of course, the technology is not the same as it is now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: We've, there's actually some, um, some satellites with publicly, that are publicly available that go down to like 40 centimeters. But, you know, that's very, very low time resolution. You're not going to get you know one image per day with that
1: and maybe a a fracture that is so small would be pretty ephemeral anyway.
2: I don't know if we'd know, but <laughs> there's a good chance, yes
0: okay <laughs> you mentioned these are publicly viewable. is this something that anybody can go look up on the internet, like a live stream of um, satellite um, imagery
2: uh it to my knowledge, not a live stream of it, however, you know like the NOAA the NUID satellites, you go to the website, you register with them, which is essentially I'm not using this for commercial use, or if you do, you have to get permission or something. And you can go download the satellite imagery, and it comes in a file that's not a picture you can look at. You have to you process the imagery yourself. And
1: Okay, so it's not like a yeah, not like It's a not hobby. easy, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I should say that you also, I think, shared one image for the blog with us, didn't you? Uh, Yes, I did. So definitely check that out, blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration and read a little bit more about Ben's story as well. For those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis on Oregon State University campus. And we're sitting down with Ben Lewis and he studies sea ice fractures and their interactions with the atmosphere. Uh, ben, so I'm a tropical biologist. I, The Arctic is a foreign concept to me, and I've learned very much from you so far. I'm wondering how you became interested in studying Arctic topics in the first place.
2: Well, I did my undergraduate in physics uh, back at the University of Arkansas, which doesn't really have any... or. Inherently, there isn't anything particularly environmental about it. However, you know, studying abroad, you are know, doing marine ecology and, you know, then later atmospheric science down in Australia and then New Zealand, respectively. And, yeah, you know, I enjoy being outdoors. I love the environment. And seeing that I can apply my knowledge of physics to the environment, you inspired me to want to go into climate research which is like saying I want to study you know, history <laughs> it's a very broad field yeah so I came here to Oregon state I worked on a post bac a second bachelor degree and from there I was able to you know, focus my interests down into polar research and I started working with my advisor during my post and news it blossomed into a uh, master's program
1: right so a uh, little bit about your time in New Zealand so that was when you had a little bit of a bump because there was <laughs> an earthquake that happened while you were there but you that was that would you say that's when your like physics your knowledge of physics and kind of your your interest in that uh collided with more like climate science and that's really what propelled you then to go into a more specialized bachelor at um, at Oregon State?
2: Uh, yes, I took a, um, or at the time I was also working on a minor in geology and they had a class called Geophysical Fluid Dynamics. And I t- took that class thinking it was gonna be how magma moves or something. <laughs> yeah, what, and then you know, it turns out it's all about you know, lapse rates in the atmosphere, fluid dynamics, you, know, you know, with an atmospheric um, emphasis, and I really enjoyed that class, and that launched me on my path that I'm on today.
1: So, what about Oregon State? For what made you select Oregon State for your post back then, coming from Arkansas?
2: Well, um, as many people my age have done, uh, my dad was living out in Salem. So, after I finished my undergraduate, I moved in with him for a while, got, you know, worked a few odd jobs here and there. And, you know, I was like, I knew I wanted to go back to school. I knew I wanted to pursue graduate work. And, you know, I knew I wanted to do it somewhere like environmental physics y stuff. Corvallis has the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Science, which, Is just the culmination of the climate system, (laughs) all in one single college. Yeah, all the professors you here like the same place, and it's a great research institute. It was you local, pretty close to Salem for me to come by and you apply, talk to some of the professors here, and I mean, it's one of the it's one of the top academic schools like out here. So,
1: right. so, how did you go then from uh finish completing your post back and you had already started some undergraduate research with Jenny? uh yes, okay, and then so when you were uh thinking of you're still wanting to do graduate school, um did she already have a program for you or did she did she already know kind of the type of project that you would be working on if you joined her lab?
2: Um yes, so technically, I didn't finish my post back. I I did finish it. I was had applied for graduation, but then transferring that into a master's program, I had run out of undergraduate classes to take. And so on my post I was just taking graduate-level classes. Ah. And in order to transfer those into my new master's program, I couldn't you know, double count them for the post-bac. So technically, I finished the requirements for the post but then... Had to, had to dip into those you just uh, switched credit over hours to for the masters. Yes. Cool. And just continued on a you know slightly higher level the research I was working on with my advisor.
0: A couple of going back to the specific areas of polar research that really inspired you. You mentioned snowball Earth and glaciology. So is it it's the the Ancient polar earth that was really drawing you to this
2: um, kind of yeah. study. Yeah. So, you know, taking these classes, I realized that, you know, a lot of people are really interested in tropical research, especially in the climate system, because that's where the sun is dumping in most of the energy. There's a lot of exciting stuff there. You know, the other really exciting phase is then the Arctic and the polar regions because. That's where all, you know, a lot of climate change is happening. And so ironically, the middle areas are kind of getting left out right now, <laughs> but yeah. So like snowball earth, I'm, you know, I'm learning about, you know, the past, past climates of the earth. And at one point in time, you, know, the earth was you know, frozen all the way to the equator. There was sea ice. You could study sea ice on the equator and you know, just like how the earth got out of that, how the earth, you became snowball earth. It was a really fascinating process so that would take me a little bit too long to go into here <laughs> <Yeah>. probably.
0: <laughs> An interesting topic nonetheless, one yes. that our listeners should <laughs> check out for sure. And
1: so um, you're nearing the end of your program now and uh, potentially the end of your time at Oregon State because you're finishing up this year, your master's. Correct. And so what, what happens after that for you? What is, what's the next thing on your list? I know it's a scary question for graduate students. It's
2: a, it's a, it's a frightening <laughs> question for graduate students. Um, at the moment I am, you know, I'm open to see what all, you know, what all becomes available. There are, you know, there's some post, post master's positions up at a PNL, a, a national laboratory in like the tri-cities area of Washington um you know getting a uh, getting a PhD would also be great funding opportunities are very scarce at mm-hmm. the moment so I'll probably probably put that off for a while could teach at um community college become a research associate at a university um with a masters in atmospheric science uh like wind wind farms are always looking for people to do modeling with winds to see what locations are going to have the highest potential for energy production. So there's a, there's a wide variety of options available.
1: Cool. Freedom, freedom and not knowing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Right. All right. Well, we're coming around to the, do you have any more questions, Lily?
0: I don't think so, but I do want to get to our traditions on the show where we, um, we ask you to share some advice you would have for, other students out there, as well as a song of your choosing. We'll get to that in a few minutes.
2: Yeah. Um, my biggest piece of advice would be, you know, especially for those in undergra- undergraduates wanting to go into graduate school, um, get to know your professors. You don't just show up to class, take tests, and leave. You, If you're wanting to get into graduate school, you'll need recommendation letters, which means... It's you know, it's nice for you to actually know your professors. <laughs> Get
1: some FaceTime. <laughs> yeah.
2: And also research. You know, during my undergraduate, you know, back at University of Arkansas, you know, I was interested in environmental stuff. There wasn't you know, the research there was astronomy, engineering, you know, that sort of base. So I had zero you know, zero research experience coming in. And that's definitely a negative when you're trying to apply for graduate school. So research, get to know professors.
1: Very good. And then our final tradition is for you to share a song with us. And we have to ask what song you chose and why.
2: Um, I chose the animals version of House of the Rising Sun. It's not the most accurate to the original folk song, which... You nobody really knows exactly who wrote it, but it's a great song. It's you know, kind of southern rock and it's got a great little great little solo in the middle.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's a classic.
1: All right, Ben. Well thank you so much for joining us on Inspiration Dissemination. I'm glad to have a fellow Arkansan, (laughs) even though we're both expats now. It's my pleasure. And uh, you're listening to Inspiration Dissemination. We were just talking to Ben Lewis from the College of Ocean, Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences about sea ice fractures. And uh, we're on every Sunday, every Sunday at 7 yeah. p.m. Yes. Unless we're not, then we'll have a rebroadcast. But we're on usually every Sunday at 7 p.m. You can hear Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis. And we're going to end the show with uh, "The House of the Rising Sun," "The House of the Rising Sun" by The Animals, which is a request of our guest Ben Lewis. All right. Thank you very much. You heard it on KBVR.
2: There is a house in your